All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne again, Lord, to worship you and to acknowledge who you are as holy and righteous. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the knowledge of who you are through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the righteousness of Christ, which is by faith. We just pray as your people, Lord, that you would revive our spirits by the hearing of the gospel, by the hearing of Christ and what he has accomplished. Lord, may you just imprint the knowledge of Christ in our hearts and the love of Christ, that we may bear the testimony of the gospel. Lord, we just pray and ask for your blessing upon your teaching this morning. May you help me in my weakness that I may preach the truth about you and also helping your people that they may hear in their weakness. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in John and John 10. (laughs) John 10. And I think as looking at the rest of the chapter, we may have two more. We may do two more sermons and then we are out of John 10 go away to John chapter 11 that I'm also looking forward to. I'm always looking forward to the next chapter. (laughs) But there's always some glorious things to talk about Jesus, to learn about Jesus, to understand about our salvation. But this morning we are going to be working our teaching from John 10 verses 17 to 21. And three quarters of that is going to be in the first two verses, John ten seventeen to 21, Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He is a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The word of the Lord. And for a sermon title, No one can take my life from me. No one can take my life away from me. No one can take my life from me. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to recover his ship to the Father. That's the understanding that John the Apostle has with regards to the person of Christ. He was in the beginning with God and he was with God and he was God. He created all things and there was nothing that was created that was not created by him and through him. And this Logos, this word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He put on flesh to himself to veil his deity. But there were more reasons for the incarnation than just veiling the deity. 
the incarnation of Christ was purposeful. It was for the end that he may come and recover his ship back to the Father. And his ship are these that the Father gave to him from before the foundation of the world. He has come in this hour not as a good moral teacher or a reformer or a freedom fighter of the kind that the Jews were looking for or as the Pope or as a Protestant but as the good shepherd of the ship. And as the good shepherd of the ship, he has come to lay down his life for the ship. He has come to die for the ship. He has come to die in their place and for their benefit. The ship were lost in such a way that they needed the shepherd to come out And look for them. But not only that. To give his life for their life. The sheep had not just strayed and eaten crops from their neighbor's garden. But they also could not find their way back home by themselves. They did more than straying. The sheep had sinned. The sheep found themselves in a very dangerous or precarious situation from which they could not recover themselves, they could not extricate themselves. They found themselves in the shackles and chains of sin, even jaws of death, and with no ability to bail themselves out. But hear this. The sheep found themselves under the judgment of sin. They were shut up under sin and death because they fell in their father Adam. The sheep found themselves spiritually blind in the process and so could not find their way home. The sheep found themselves lame and could not walk home. They found themselves deaf. And so could not hear the call of the shepherd unless and until their ears were unplugged. The sheep, though elect, were born under condemnation. The sheep sinned and died in Adam and were condemned in him. They died in Adam. And so if they have to be recovered Bail has to be paid for them to get out of jail. But the bail out was set too high beyond their savings, beyond their desire, beyond their power, beyond their ability to redeem themselves. But the bailout payment or the ransom payment or the redemption payment was such that if one is set free, If one could find it, if one could find enough payment, then they were set free forever. By one payment, all those who belong to Christ would be set free. If that payment was found for one of the ship, it was good for all the ship. Hear me? 
By one blood, they were all justified. By one sacrifice, they were all perfected forever. By one sacrifice. Let us get some more understanding. The sheep are elect, but their election does not save them. They need more than election to be recovered back to God. Election is not the fullness of salvation. Election is not the totality of salvation. Election is unto salvation. Election is unto salvation. Second Timothy 2 10. Second Timothy 2 10. Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says, Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Why, Paul? That they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Second Thessalonians 2. Verses 13 and 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. The same apostle Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. God chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, brethren, you were from the beginning chosen. You were elected for salvation. So election is unto salvation. Election sets the pathway For the elect to be redeemed in time by the blood of Christ. It qualifies them to be recipients of the work of redemption. One is, I'll give you an example. One is not considered married by just dating. Although it seems to be so in our day and time. Dating, if successful, is unto marriage. That should be the goal anyway. It's unto marriage. Dating sets the stage for the process of marriage to begin. That the two may be legally pronounced husband and wife and be recognized as a couple, as wife and husband. And In our culture, like in Zimbabwe, in the Zimbabwean culture and other Eastern cultures, marriage goes beyond just exchanging vows and buying a ring. One has to pay the dowry price to the parents without which they are just checking with each other. There is no recognition of marriage. And so in salvation, Christ has to pay a dowry price by his blood to the Father that our election would lead unto salvation, would lead unto marriage with Christ. And so 
the election in Christ initiates the process of salvation. The salvation that happens in time at the cost of the death of Christ it is the blood of Christ which was the dowry price, the ransom price for us to be married to him. But hear this. The elect need someone to come and redeem them. They need someone who stands in their place to redeem them, to die for them and give his life for them. That they may be spared from what is on them, sin, death and condemnation. And as long as people who claim to preach the gospel are not working these things, sin, death and condemnation, they cannot preach Christ because Christ was revealed to deal with these matters. And so the elect, because of where they find themselves, require a death that is enough, that is good enough to set them free because they are captives. And as I said, and being captives and being under condemnation, they have not enough money to redeem themselves and there's no bank in the world that has that kind of money. There's not enough gold deposits and there's not enough paper to print that kind of money that is enough to redeem a soul that is sinned. And good manners are not enough for this transaction either. And this is where many people are stumbling at the gospel. Because they are not addressing the gospel for what the gospel is addressing. The gospel is addressing your relationship to the law of God. That's your problem. Because God is holy and is righteous And you and I are sinners. And why are we sinners? Because we have broken his law. And because we have broken his law, we are under sin, death, and condemnation. And so when we mess that understanding, we bring good morals to try and satisfy those things. And this is not to say good manners are bad. Good manners are good, but they do not take the place of the work of Christ. They do not take the place of a new birth. Unless one is born again and converted to the truth of the gospel, they will not see life. And that's Jesus' teaching. Jesus said, you have to be born again from above to see the kingdom. That's the condition of life. You have to be born again. There are far too many good-mannered and good-natured people that I know who died without Christ. Okay? They died without Christ. And so the elect need a ransom payment to be made for them if they are ever to see life. The ransom payment has to be made. They need something like a bronze serpent to be raised for them in their wilderness in their wilderness of sin, that they may look look to the bronze serpent because they have been bit by many fiery serpents and their blood is full of venom. They have been in the wilderness for too long and 
the fiery serpents are still in the wilderness and they're still biting and they need an antidote to the venom to be found for them. Just removing the fiery serpents is not enough. Just removing your sin even right now and making you feel righteous is not good enough. Why? Because the damage has already been done. Removing the fiery serpents is not good enough. You've already been beat. And this is why when the children of Israel came to Moses and asked Moses and say, well, Moses, go talk to God and ask him to remove the fiery serpents. And God said, no, I'm not removing the fiery serpents. That's not the solution. The solution is you need a bronze serpent <laughs> to be raised. I am going to provide the antidote to the venom. So you and I, we need the antidote to sin. In Numbers 21, 7 to 9, the one that I just referenced, I didn't realize that I, I actually had the text here, but let's just read that. Numbers 21, 7 to 9. Moses writes and says, Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Take away the sin from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is beaten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Mo Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had beaten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So even now, we are still in the wilderness of sin. God has not removed our sin from us, but he has given us an antidote, always available when sin slews us. And so John will say in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, if anyone gets beat by the fiery serpent, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why, John? And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So if we were to rewrite First John 2 verse 1, the second part of the verse, you say, if anyone sins, if anyone gets beat, we have an antidote with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And to that, the Lord Jesus Christ would come and say in John 3, 14 and 15. Have you been beat by a fiery serpent, Sister Beck? <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ would come and say in John 3, 14 and 15, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That whoever should, the believing is the looking. The one who believes, the one who looks at the raised bronze serpent is the one who shall live. And that bronze serpent was just a type of Christ. People were not healed by that bronze serpent. They were healed by Christ himself. 
And so the question of salvation comes down to what are you looking at for your salvation? In the desert, they looked at the raised bronze serpent that did not have any venom in itself. And those who looked were saved. And so now we look to Christ who had no sin in himself and by his stripes we are healed. And only those that have been given the faith to look to the raised Christ who continue to look to him, the rest will perish. Because the venom is already there. And so the elect need someone to be raised up that they may look at him. This is what God is working. The elect need someone to be raised up that they may look at him. It is only by this someone being raised like a bronze serpent that they will be drawn to him and have life. For he said in John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And so the elect have been in the wilderness for far too long and they are thirsting and they need some water from the rock. But this water comes out only when the rock has been smitten by the rod of Moses. The water could not come out before the rock had been smitten. The rock needs to be smitten by the law for salvation to flow. Christ had to be smitten by the law of God, the judgment of God that was due us. And by him taking that judgment, the waters of salvation flowed. So this rock also is a grain of wheat who has to be planted. He has to die. So you see, all these pictures have been given to give us understanding of the work of Christ because it is just that extensive. So the elect need to be born again. And that is why as Jesus approached the cross, he was in travail. He was in travail like a woman who was about to give birth. He was suffering the birth pangs of our delivery. And the cross is the place where he gave birth to his children. And God looked at the labor of his soul in the delivery room on the cross and he was satisfied. So the cross was like a maternity ward for the birth of those who belong to God. Now the labor on the cross was not for a stillborn. It was a successful birth and he was pleased by it. He had joy over it and the father was also pleased by it. And the cross became the place of the new creation, the place of the new birth. And it was by means of death of the one who is not from below but from above that all the elect were actually born again. The beginning of the new creation, it all happened on the cross. In time, you come to possess the benefits of that birth that happened on the cross. 
So it is by the means of the death of this one who was not from the loins of sinful Adam that the elect have their hope. He has to come and die for them because the law says the soul that sins, it must die. So Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world, which means appointed to be the sacrifice by which sin would be removed. Because it was the Father's will and the eternal purpose that he should come and die for his people. That he should be the surety and guarantee of the life of those that the Father gave to him. So he had to come and he had to die. So this is where Jesus is coming from with all these statements. He has all this theology behind him. Jesus comes and he knows that he is the Lamb of God. Now, a lamb was not raised for petting. They did not have a petting zoo. If you were a Jew, you knew what the lamb was for. It was not raised for its cuteness, but to die in the place of the sinner that on account of his death, the sinner would live. And so Jesus Christ has come as the fulfillment of that lamb and all those Old Testament sacrifices. He is the Son of God who is God from eternity. He is the I am that I am. He is the self-sufficient one, the self-existing one who has need of nothing and has life in himself. It is by him that all things were made and are sustained whose light is the life of man. It is this one who has come to die for his ship. John, in the beginning, in John chapter 1, talks about Christ being the light of the world, and we continue to see that theme of Christ being light. And it's very important in the context of everything that Jesus is saying in John 10, the verses that we're dealing with, this all building to the background as to why Jesus would say what he said. Plant life needs sunlight for energy, for photosynthesis. Otherwise, the plants will die and there will be no life as we know it on earth. And John says, Jesus is the light of man and his light is the life of man. Which means he is the one who sustains the life that is in man as the light sustains the life of plant life. He holds all things by the word of his power and in him all things consist. But the light of Christ is not a candle light or light from a handheld kerosene lamp like John the Baptist was. A candle light needs to be lit by someone else. But Jesus has light in himself. His light is force. P-H-O-S. It is light that cannot be extinguished. It is light that can be put out with a fire extinguisher. It does not matter what type of fire extinguisher one uses. It is light that cannot be smothered by water. It is light that is intrinsic to the nature of being 
it is self-produced. In him, there's no darkness at all, for he is all light. And this light has come to this place of darkness that he may remove the darkness that is in the world. And that darkness is removed by his light and his death. The darkness of the world did not comprehend the light that was Christ Jesus. The darkness wanted to overcome the light. The darkness wanted to put out the light to overcome it and extinguish it. But it could not. And so if Jesus... (laughs) It's a long introduction, but you understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. But these themes are important to the statement that Jesus makes about him putting down his own life. So you have to know who Christ is first, because that is the basis of him saying that. So he is light that can be put out. So how are you going to put him out? Because he needs to be put out if he's going to die. So the darkness wanted to put out the light, but it could not. If he has to be subject to death to remove our own sin, it has to be by his own will and not the will of man. Because man have no resources to put out the light that is Christ. They have no power to remove the life and cause the death of one who is life in himself. No sinner has enough fire trucks and firemen to extinguish his light. And no man has power enough to take away his life from him. Jesus was not killed by sinners. Sinners have no power to take away life from one who is life in himself. No sinner has power to take life away from the Logos. And no nails are good enough or strong enough or bad enough to remove the life of the Son of God from him. There are no nails that are strong enough and big enough to nail God to a piece of a tree. Jesus did not die because he lost a lot of blood. Jesus did not say that in his theology. Jesus was not kept on the cross by some nails. He was never a prisoner of the nails. Never. Matthew 27, 39 to 44. 27. Matthew 27, verses 39 to 44. Matthew says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. 
those who passed by, looking at Jesus on the cross, thought he was on the cross because he could not take off the nails. They thought he was bound to the tree by some rusted nails. As I said, there are no nails strong enough to keep the Son of God hanging on a piece of tree that he created. And so they wagged their heads and blasphemed and mocked him. They wanted him to save himself, his physical self. They see him, they saw him at the mercy of their nails and their hammers. They say, if you are the son of God, prove it by coming down from the cross. But they do not know what is happening. They don't understand what is happening. They do not know that if he is raised up, he will draw all men to himself. And the chief priests, we are told, and the scribes and the elders were also mocking him, saying he saved others and himself he cannot save and praise the Lord for that testimony. They were speaking more than they understood. Praise the Lord that he did not come down from that tree of shame because he could. Praise the Lord that he saved others. They gave a true testimony of the gospel. Jesus saved others by being put on the cross. It was not for lack of strength that he remained on the cross. It was because of his obedience that he remained on the cross. Jesus did not begin to obey on the cross. The cross was the ultimate show or demonstration of his unwavering obedience to the Father. It was the summit or height of his obedience and death is the totality of one's obedience and commitment. When people exchange vows in marriage, they say something to the effect that till death do us part. They are committed to each other and only to be separated by death. So the death of Christ is not to be seen as a single event that is separated from his obedience. The death of Christ is the totality of the obedience that is Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Even the death of the cross. He became obedient. Right from his incarnation, he was obedient to God in his life, even to the point of death on the cross. So the death on the cross is the finality and totality of the obedience of Christ. So the death of Christ on the cross was not a separate obedience. Christ cannot be divided. Christ cannot be divided. One is either wholly obedient or they are not obedient. Christ cannot be obedient on the cross without being obedient in his life. It can't happen. Obedience is either zero or 100%. Righteousness is either 100% or zero. Sovereignty is either 100% or zero. This one who is Christ 
always did the will of the Father. That's the testimony of Jesus from the book of John. He always did the will of the Father. And the Father's testimony of the Son is, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the Father was pleased with his Son. And the writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews 5, 7 and 9. Hebrews 7 and 9. Sorry, Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 9. Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 9. What's wrong with me? The writer of Hebrews says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The writer of Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh, in the days of his life, he was the man of sorrows, offering up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the Father. That's obedience, folks. <laughs> and that has to count for something. Jesus suffered in his earthly surgeon, being tested in all things, just like us, and yet without sin. Because temptation is a test of obedience. And there's suffering every time that your obedience is tested. And according to the writer of Hebrews, that is what perfected him. That is what fitted him to be the author of eternal salvation. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is important in this context to expound on the loud cries and the piety of Christ in his life. These were things that were happening in the heart of Jesus, as he is meditating on the work that he has to do for the salvation of his people. He knows what's coming. Psalm 22, I'm just going to read it all because it's just too glorious. Verse 1 to 31, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted and you delivered them, they cried to you and were delivered, they trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. Do you see that the me in translations is going to be capitalized? M. That's Christ. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Wasn't that what we read from Matthew? Let him deliver him since he delights in him. 
but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there's none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encycled me. They gap at me with their mouths like a raging and rolling lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a post head, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. All my strength hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he had. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied, and you and I are the poor. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. For all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. Every knee, every tongue shall bow and confess that he is Lord. Verse 30. A posterity shall save him. That's a remnant. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. That's Christ. And so this Jesus was heard by the Father because of his piety, his godly fear, his reverent submission. My friends, we cannot divide the obedience of Christ. Christ obeyed God right from the beginning and he never failed at any point. And so we cannot minimize the obedience of Christ in his life. The obedience of his life is what perfected him for the obedience of the cross. The things that he suffered perfected him for the cross. He was perfected. He was fitted to become the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So the cross was the place of the final transaction of his obedience. This is where his obedience was consummated as final and complete. His death, his blood was the seal 
of the total obedience of Christ towards God on behalf of his people. And all those who obey him are those who believe the gospel. These are the ones who believe the work that he did on their behalf. And only sheep believe that Jesus as the shepherd died for them. And so Jesus, and so Jesus humbled himself and obeyed to be hung on the tree. As he told Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it were given you from above. And so the nails did not have any power over him unless they were given power from above. See also that the guards could not break his legs so as to expedite his death. The guards could not break Christ's legs as to cause his death. Listen to this. John 19, 31 to 33. John 19, 31 to 33, John says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should remain, sorry, therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They wanted to break the legs of Christ that he may die. And if they did that, they would be the ones who would have offered Christ. And God says no. You're not going to do that. Jesus' legs could not be broken. Why? Because he was not a sinner. His legs could not be broken because he was not a sinner. Only sinners whose walk with God was broken because of sin are they whose legs were broken. But there's more. The Jews wanted to expedite the death of Christ and take his life away from him. And when the soldiers came, they found out that Jesus had already died. His life could not be taken away by man. And so, he said, John 10, Therefore my father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of myself, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my father. Jesus says, no one takes his life away from him. He laid it down that he may take it again. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay down of myself of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. So what was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying he achieved his own death and achieved his own resurrection. In the scriptures, when you're reading the New Testament, you're going to find out that Jesus was raised by the Father. He was raised by the Holy Spirit. But he also says 
he raised himself. <laughs> so, Jesus achieved his own death because his life was never in the hands of sinful men who had no life in themselves. Sinners had no command from the Father to take life. The devil had no command to take away life from Christ because they could not. The command to take his life was given to Jesus by the Father. And this command God gave to no one else but Jesus. And by laying down his life by himself, Jesus was not saying he was going to commit suicide. This is not suicide language. Jesus did not die the death of Judas Iscariot. He died by his own sovereign will and power as the sinless son of God who died as the substitute for his people. See something else that happened there on the cross. Jesus had to die first before the two thieves could die. Jesus, the one who had life in himself, had to die first. And this is what I think. There's no record in the Bible where someone ever died in the presence of Jesus. So as long as Jesus was still alive with those two thieves, those two thieves were not going to die, even with their legs broken. And those who knew Jesus like Martha, listen to what Martha said about that. Martha said in John 11, verse 21 and 22, talking about her own brother Lazarus. John records and says, Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If Jesus had been there, her brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So Martha knows something about the person of Christ that his very presence means life. She knows that Christ is the resurrection and the life. But Martha also gives another great testimony of Christ and says, but I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus gets everything that he wants from the Father. And that is very good news. Because one of the things that Jesus wants from the Father is that you and I come and behold the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. That's what he said in John 17, 24. Actually, I'll read that. When Jesus was praying, he said, Father, John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus gets whatever he wants. And that's good news. So anyone who preaches a gospel that says Jesus is going to lose some of the things that he asked the Father to have does not know this Jesus. And so the father loved the son because he laid down his life for the ship. God loved Jesus for having died for his ship and this was God's will. And that has to mean something in our understanding of salvation. God loved Jesus because he died to recover and bring the ship to God. 
But there are many other things that please God the Father about his son. Listen to this. Remember what Jesus has said in John 10, 17. He says, therefore my father loves me because that's the reason I lay down my life that I may take it again. So God the Father loves that about Christ. God the Father is pleased by the work of Christ. And in Isaiah 53.10, Isaiah records and says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So God the Father was pleased to bruise him, but not only that. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, This is what pleases the Father about his Son. Apostle Paul says, Colossians 1, 19 and 20, For it pleased the Father, that in him all the fullness should dwell. The fullness of God should dwell in Christ. It pleased God. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, that pleased God. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So you you see the ultimate end of this is the cross. The blood of the cross is the reason why Christ came in the flesh. Because it is by the blood of the cross that God reconciles all things through Christ. So the father was pleased that all the fullness of God should dwell in Christ. Colossians 2.9. Listen to this. Colossians 2.9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so Jesus carried in his body the fullness of God, the fullness of deity, and that too pleased the Father. He did not empty himself of anything as Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn. Jesus never emptied anything of himself. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him in bodily form. The fullness. He was still God in the flesh, but he veiled his glory from the sinful eyes. (laughs) He veiled his glory. His emptying was not of cutting down on some of his attributes of deity. Like when you're reading Philippians chapter 2, the emptying of Christ is not saying Christ set aside his deity or some of the attributes of deity. He had the fullness of God in himself as he was walking. The emptying that Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 2 was the addition of a lower nature to deity. Taking on human nature and becoming a lowly servant who died a shameful death of a criminal on the cross. And so his emptying was by addition and not subtraction. 
It was by humiliation and not subtraction. And so the father was pleased in Christ because by his death, he reconciled all things to himself. So the cross purchased peace for man with God and reconciled God to man. Man did not reconcile man to God. God reconciled himself to man on his own terms. He was the wronged party and he alone could make reconciliation in Christ Jesus. And so the blood of Christ was the basis on which God could only reconcile all things to himself. And that was the basis by which the elect could be forgiven of their sins. Because until the blood has been shed, your election cannot reconcile you to God. The blood has to be shed. And so election sets you to partake of the benefit of the shed blood. Okay? So the blood is the basis on which God's righteousness could be given. It's the basis on which you and I could come before him without spot or wrinkle and above reproach. So the blood of the cross sounds better. The, the blood of the cross was the basis on which God could make reconciliation with himself because of man's sin. So the death of Christ was the means by which Christ also was going to be exalted. So the death of Christ not only redeemed and reconciled the elect to God, it is also the way by which Christ was going to be exalted and given the name that is above all names. So in the death of Christ, God was looking beyond the cross itself. The cross was not the end of things. The exaltation of Christ was the end of all things. But that exaltation had to happen by way of the cross. And that was God's eternal purpose. So God the Father was looking to Christ and he was pleased with what Christ did because in Christ getting glorified, he also was being glorified. That's the language of Jesus as he goes towards the cross. He says, Father, I have glorified your name. Now you glorify me. Christ looked at the cross as a work of glorification, not as a work of cosmic child abuse, as some people would say. And so Jesus himself, because of the agony of the cross, he was looking beyond the cross itself. Because before the cross, Jesus was even agonizing and thinking, should I really do this? If it's possible, take away this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But we are taught by the writer of Hebrews about what Jesus also had in mind as he was on the cross. He says in Hebrews 12, too, talking about faith, says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne 
of God. So Christ had more than just the redemption of his people. He had the joy that was coming because of his exaltation on the right hand of the Father. And so the Father was pleased with Christ as his son and he was pleased by the work that he did. There's only one person who is not pleased. It's Jenny. <laughs> it's only us sinners who are still not pleased by the work of Christ. And this is why we come and we want to improve on it. We want to do some other things to improve on that work. Improve on it by our own self-righteousness. Because we fail to understand the theology of the cross. And many people stumble at the cross because they make it too much about themselves. They make salvation too much about themselves. Salvation is about the glory of Christ. And because it's about God's glory, it never fails. Because God never fails to glorify himself. Yes, Christ died to redeem us. But our redemption was not the end of the story. It was the beginning of the story. The real story was that he was glorifying himself and his father. And when we make salvation about ourselves and about our own obedience and about our own tears and loud cries, then we make a mockery of him who gave his life for us. But there are always mockers of Christ. There are always mockers of the gospel. They were always mocking Jesus. But not only that, every time that Jesus spoke, he always divided people. Christ always divides the true gospel always divides. And no matter how you desire to avoid confrontation, the moment that you stand for the gospel, it's going to come. You'll be like, okay, I'm just going to be so nice and gentle. I'm not going to fight with people anymore. I'm going to walk my Christian life. And then before you know it, someone shows up. <laughs> and... You tell them the very basics of the truth of the gospel and they deny it. That's your opinion. I don't believe in that Jesus. I don't believe in election. God loves everybody. But it is not you that is causing division. It is the truth of the gospel that causes division. And so the text says, as we finish, we're not even going to talk much about this. The text says, verse 19 to 21 of John 10, Therefore, in the light of everything that Jesus has said, there was a division again among the Jews because of these things. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. He's crazy. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind. So there was a division among the people because Jesus had said he was giving his life for the ship. And that was a controversial statement in the ears of the hearers because they understood that it was a statement of election and particular redemption or limited atonement. And sinners hate those doctrines. Election and limited atonement. If you have election, then you have to go to limited atonement. 
Jesus declared his power and sovereignty over death and sinners did not like that. He said, I have power to put down my life and to take it back again. And no man can take my life away from me. And they were hearing this and they are seething in anger. Like, who is this guy? He has a demon. You, you have to be crazy. People don't like a strong Jesus. They want a weak and vulnerable Jesus who has a sippy cup and can be put in a stroller and be laid down in a crib. The church world loves that kind of Jesus. They want a Jesus that they can buy toys for and carry him around. But this one who comes says, no one takes my life away from me is not very nice and gentle. And so sinners will create their own Jesus that they want to worship. And if they create their own Jesus, he becomes easy to manipulate and carry around. And so those who are not born again will come and say, I do not believe in your Jesus because they have their own Jesus. Your Jesus divides people and does not serve everyone. I do not worship a Jesus like that. He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to that kind of theology? That's what they say. This guy is mad. He's crazy. Why do you listen to him? Why do you listen to sovereign grace teaching? Grateful Dollar said, God's sovereignty is a demonic teaching. It's demonic to teach that God is sovereign. Don't listen to the sovereign grace theology. That's bad theology. It makes God the author of sin. God loves all men and wants to save all men. But it's just men who are getting in the way of that work of salvation. But those who are the sheep, listen to this. The called out ones, those who have been given ears to hear, who come and say, no, these are not the words of one who is a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? One does not receive the truth of Christ from demons. Opening the eyes of a sinner to see the truth of the gospel is not the work of demons. That is the work of God alone. And that is the testimony of all those who belong to Christ. That he came and he gave his life for the sheep. And he died and he resurrected. And that's the testimony of the gospel. And that's the message that we have. And if anyone does not believe that, then they have not been taught of God. Because if God teaches you, you have to bring that testimony of who Christ is and what work he accomplished for his people. Amen. I'm done. So we're going to pray so that still can go and eat. <laughs> He's looking hungry. Look at him. He lost... It was five pounds. <laughs> Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne to praise you. Thank you for the good shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, and the work that he did to recover those that you gave to him who were under sin, death, and condemnation, even the power of the evil one, and recover them to yourself. And we thank you, Lord, that he was faithful in all things. He obeyed even to the point of death on the cross. 
And this was all that we may be saved. And that in the process that he may be glorified and be exalted on the right hand of power. Lord, we pray and we just thank you uh, for giving us time to come into your word and be encouraged again and be reminded of the truth of Christ and who we are in him and the hope that we have as your people. We just pray for all those also who shall listen to this message, that you may grant them ears beforehand, that you may speak to them the truths of Christ, and that some may be converted by it, and some may be edified by it. Lord, we just pray and we thank you for blessing. May you be with us in our going in and out. May you bring us all back together again next week, if it is your will. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.